Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to this week's New Statesman podcast. I'm Patrick McGuire, and this week I'm joined by my colleagues Stephen Bush, Anoush Chikalian, and Alva Ray to discuss Boris Johnson's appearance at the Liaison Committee and the past two years in British politics. So Boris Johnson was grilled, probably, let's face it, for the first and last time in his premiership by the Liaison Committee yesterday, which kind of brought together the sort of two big stories of the week, the big political row, which is the ongoing fallout of the revelation that Dominic Cummings broke lockdown, which he, of course, has now admitted, and the rollout of the United Kingdom's test and trace infrastructure to a greater or lesser extent. Appropriately, Patrick, for your sort of last ever podcast with us before you go and join the, the Murdoch Empire, is it reminded me of, of, of one of your many fogeyish opinions, which was the committee chairing has been made worse by clickable questions. Did you feel that this this session validated that that view? Sorry, I I was just thinking about how unclippable a lot of the questions on the Brexit Select Committee with David Frost and Michael Gove the other day were. Or maybe they were too clippable. To give an example, just to, not to be unfair and a, a new member of the 2019 intake, Nicola Richards, the new MP for West Bromwich East, was like, what does Michelle Barnier say when you say you can't put up with the level playing field? Which obviously plays, you know, plays very well in, you know, if you can clip that and put it on the Facebooks of target that at leave votes in West Bromwich, I imagine it goes down a storm. If you can say, you know, I challenge the government on why Brussels won't give us a, a good deal. But in terms of actual scrutiny, not the best use of David Frost's time. But in terms of the liaison committee yesterday, sorry, I've digressed. My opinion has always been that this sort of vogue for mic dropping, infinitely clippable, sort of very arch select committee chairs is actually bad for scrutiny. Because say uh, there's a there's a famous clip of Yvette Cooper and Caroline Noakes where Noakes isn't great, but obviously then you know Cooper does the big thing of hands on the side of the face, exhaling aggressively. And you sort of do think, well, yeah, Caroline Oates is an idiot here, but does this piece of political theatre, does it make successful scrutiny of ministers or you know healthy attitudes from ministers towards parliamentary scrutiny more or less likely? And I've always come down the side of less likely. And I guess you see, you see it a bit on, I tweeted this during the press conference, uh, the coming statement on Sunday, which is, 
there were some great questions as sort of meandering pieces of political theatre. But in terms of actual questions, the, the best have tended not to be the impassioned monologues, but the short, sharp, the morality or the moral point I'm trying to make is will be apparent in your answer and not the facial expression or the you know the length of my my question naming no journalists in particular but it's just a sort of and obviously that they're oppressed if you're a broadcast journalist you need um something for your package i really see what you're saying because whenever i watch a liaison committee hearing it always reminds me of the kind of interviews that I do less often now, but I used to have to do, particularly in my in my former job at Total Politics with a minister where you get sort of an hour with them. And it's one of those interviews that would be described as a wide ranging interview. And you just have this list of questions that covers everything, you know, policy in all sorts of areas, the, the latest sort of political row, the leadership, the opposition. And you just have to try and sort of scattergun ask these questions in the hope of nicking a news line somewhere. And obviously that's fine in a print interview because you'll probably get your newsline at some point and then you lead with that and you make it look like it was all very organised and coherent at the time. But um, for a committee hearing which people, you know, which people watch and, and which gets clipped, I think it's it's sort of less of a less of a good approach and it often feels a little bit chaotic. So I agree with you that it, the sort of setup can almost be a barrier to scrutiny in a way. To, to be a kind of hackney supremacist briefly, I thought Mickey Lear got it exactly right. In the, I accept it would have looked dotty for them not to mention it at all, but she just answered a short, sharp, factual question, which meant that he had nowhere to hide, and it didn't eat into their time. I thought the person who did worse was actually Simon Hall, whose select committee does lots of very good work on Northern Ireland, but ultimately, like, are you going to ask any questions about how test and trace relates to the part of the United Kingdom which has a land border with another country coming out of lockdown in its own. Yeah, like, there were no questions about that, no questions from Pete Wishart about any of the jagged edges that this will create around devolution in terms of the ending of the furlough scheme in order to fail to nail him on the Cummings issue. And then obviously Darren Jones, I thought, was brilliant and managed to do both things very well right at the end. But yeah, I think I completely agree with with Patrick's granddad opinion. I don't know, maybe I'm imagining just like committee chairs that don't exist, but is there a, is there a discernible difference between, we were just saying before we start recording that you thought Pete Wishart was one of the less effective people yesterday. Are people who take up these select committee chairmanships as a pulpit for, with a view to advancing a, a different kind of a, a political viewpoint rather than parliamentary scrutiny worse at the job like if you're using it to burnish your own political profile or you've been elected because of your strength as a you know a factional operator or you're popular particularly popular within one party or you've been prominent as a minister as as increasingly the case your skill set isn't necessarily the same as i guess this is one of the changes to the system of elections right what will get you elected doesn't necessarily make you a good chair yeah, so I thought the thing that was interesting yesterday was that we were expecting it to be sort of spicy on the Dominic Cummings issue and there was a sort of widespread expectation that that would be the tricky bit for Boris Johnson and that would be where people would particularly needle him and that was clearly what he was most prepared for. And then as as everyone has said, a lot of the questions were kind of imprecise and we'll maybe have ticked an important box for some members of the public in that they 
will have wanted to see their frustration and anger vented in that kind of a forum but it ultimately didn't really pin Boris Johnson down on anything apart from really as you say Stephen McHillier who was brilliant but I thought what was interesting was the way actually when someone like Stephen Timms just asked a question in completely good faith about a couple in his constituency who are immigrants from Pakistan have been living here for a long time one of the members of the couple has has lost their job and so they can't pay their rent anymore because they don't have any recourse to public funds and it was a it was a, just a very direct question to ask the prime minister about the financial support available to those people who clearly don't have any other option he can't go out in the middle of a pandemic and get another job and it was just astonishing that Boris Johnson didn't seem to know what no recourse to public funds meant or exactly how those policies around benefits and immigration really work in practice. And I think that might be the the fallout of the whole Cummings affair, that actually it doesn't look like Dominic Cummings is going anywhere and the damage has been done. But Boris Johnson has been faithfully undermined across the board. He did, a, I thought, a very, very poor performance on so many questions where he just wasn't across the detail because he was clearly expecting to have to focus on difficult questions about his senior advisor. But, you know, given that coronavirus is, you know, the only thing on the agenda, there are obviously so many facets to that. But you would just expect a prime minister to be across the detail. We know that being across the detail isn't a strong point of Boris Johnson's. He is probably still exhausted from having had the virus himself and from having a newborn baby and so on. But ultimately, he wasn't able to ask those questions. So I thought I thought that, you know, it depends whether you're looking for political theatre or just genuine answers to genuine questions. And it was amazing that it was when you were looking for genuine answers that Boris Johnson really crumbled. Yeah, the, the him finding out live on air about a central plank of immigration and welfare policy, which for the benefit of listeners who, yeah, I mean, I think it's perfectly reasonable for people not to know this, but I particularly when you're the MP for Hillingdon, yeah, like you're by Heathrow, where literally so many people in your constituency will have no recourse to public funds, including people who are, you know, affluent, married to Tory voters, et cetera, et cetera. That basically means that you can't, you know, your, the conditions of your visa do not allow you to access primarily social security, but a swathe of other public services that are otherwise free at the point of use. And yet it was truly wild watching him discover live on air that this exists. Ditto, like Mel Stride, the Treasury Secretary's questions were, to me, other ones where I just found it deeply troubling. He didn't seem to be able to, like, it was basically, he was just like, so you've ruled out cuts. So that means that taxes are going to go up, right? This is a fairly basic question of economic policy. And it wasn't, I wouldn't have minded if I thought he was evading the question poorly. It was, and he didn't seem to have grasped the question that I found troubling. Yeah, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you both mentioned Stephen Timms's input because he's one of the select committee chairs and politicians that I really rate. And I thought that was a great question on no recourse to public funds because it is something that Boris Johnson, as an MP for his constituency and also as Prime Minister, should should know about. And it was just so nakedly clear that he he didn't understand what he was being asked. And I think that comes into what Patrick was saying about different types of select committee chairs and and political theatre in that there's probably a temptation to approach a politician like Boris Johnson 
in the style of a politician like Boris Johnson, you know, theatrical and fun to watch. But actually, they did the opposite, which which I thought was quite classy. And, you know, you can expect that he'd planned all of his twists and turns over the Dominic Cummings questions that he expected. But instead, just sort of nailing him on detail, you're not going to get those mic drop moments that lead, lead the news. But they do expose bit by bit the fact that he's not on top of this crisis and and policy in general. Can we also take a moment to appreciate the just the human drama around Caroline Noakes, which I thought was one of the, in terms of just good TV, was one of the best bits of yesterday's liaison committee. Because as Patrick mentioned, one of the most well, like, widely shared clips of a select committee hearing is an exchange between Yvette Cooper as chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee and Caroline Noakes when she was immigration minister. And I actually, I kind of disagree with Patrick, but I thought that, I mean, yes, Yvette Cooper did sort of put her hands on either side of her head and sigh and exasperation and so on. And Caroline Noakes was quite sassy in reply to some things, but I thought that ultimately it did expose a lot of government confusion around their plan for EU immigration in the event of of no deal. And it also just sort of did make Caroline Noakes look insufficiently briefed there was so much bitterness between the two of them it was it was kind of amazing to watch and now Caroline Noakes is herself having been sacked from Boris Johnson's government when he took over from Theresa May as prime minister and then having had the whip withdrawn briefly for rebelling over Brexit again with that other cohort of Tory Brexit rebels she obviously has burned all her bridges with Boris Johnson I just thought that the the drama there was really, really interesting because, again, I think that maybe there was an expectation from Boris Johnson that once he got past the Dominic Cummings questions that things would be easy. And I think he was maybe tired as the hearing went on and he really just showed his true colours in lots of little ways responding to questions about the representation of of women in his government and the importance of women in decision-making. I think Caroline Noakes' tone was quite hostile I think partly because she did want to like pin him down on things and also partly because maybe, you know, there there's a bit of animosity there as well. But just the way he was all, oh, I don't want to be sexist. Oh, oh gosh. I just thought it was it was so hideously embarrassing. And, you know, he ended on a joke about how she could be the third conservative female prime minister, which given the human story around it was really, really embarrassing. But I think it just sort of, it suggested, I think, in a, in a really important way, it did suggest a kind of disdain for that kind of questioning, which came across really, really badly and exposed to huge holes in the government's thinking around provision in terms of childcare and so on. But yeah, I thought that was a, a kind of great moment of the the personal and then the bigger political questions coming together. And then, you know, the sort of revenge of Caroline Noakes. Yeah, the revenge of Caroline Noakes was, again, partly because it was a thing where it's just like, ultimately, you know you're going to get this question. It's the chair of the Women and Equalities Committee. You and her are personally, politically at odds. Yeah, it was the way that he, he, he really struggled to prepare for things which were very obviously going to happen. And I think, it was obviously this was true at City Hall, but I think he just was faster on his feet then. He was better at gliding over the stuff where he hadn't done done the the research. I thought it was really telling that, you know, Bernard Jenkin, who is actually, you know, very on top of this sort of thing and is very into it as an agenda, going, well, do you think it matters? You know, do, do you think it changes the decision if, if, if there are a balance of men and women in the room? And just thinking, 
this is a yes no answer and i really don't understand how you haven't even managed to have a kind to deal with this question very well also incredible that he couldn't think about the proportion of women that would be appropriate or necessary in good government decision making it's not like you're talking about ethnic minorities and you might forget the the proportion of black and minority ethnicities that make up the uk population like you can just go for half and and you get it right (laughs) if you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too then why not subscribe to the new statesman you can get 12 weeks for 12 pounds go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12 Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And now it's time for a section that for one week only we're calling... You Ask Patrick! <laughs> Patrick notably not, not joining in there. As befits the tradition, yeah. <laughs> Is this why you're leaving? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no. The, uh, as, as we said the, in, the, in the last podcast, the call and response, I'm more of a... I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of a, a, a decent joke, but I have not. I once watched a, gr- a great sta- a great stand up gig where somebody said his ambition was to be a pip, as in Gladys Knight and the Pips, and then he spent his whole set miming to the backing vocals of Midnight Train to Georgia. It was funnier than it. I've just made it sound. Anyway, that was that was a that was a fun thirty seconds. Um, <laughs> So this is your last podcast with us, although you know we it may is. invite you on as a guest at some point in future. If Times Radio allows that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, yeah, my, my vocal cords will soon be the property of, of, of somebody else. So we remember when you were but a, a young Anthony Howard scholar writing about UKIP yeah. and, and what was it? Bad Bootle Meth. UKIP, God, yeah. No, remember them? Yeah, no, no. I... I started, I meant to continue writing about the reactionaries of British politics and their successes and failures. Yeah, bad bootle UKIP meth. Yeah, that was it. I introduced that particular bit of Scouse slang and the and the notion of purple bins and their significance in demarcating a true Scouser from a wool like me <laughs> and indeed Paul Nuttall. <laughs> and here I am now having um, written about Robert Kilroy Silk for 5,000 words, interviewed Steve Baker not once but twice. <laughs> yeah, and survived so that's that's what what I thought it would be interesting to ask you. Loyal listeners and readers will know that that Robert Kilroy Silk profile was your magnum opus, maybe more so than the book you're currently writing. Jokes. <laughs> I thought it'd be interesting to ask you what pieces you're most proud of from your time at the NS. God, it's it's all. Well, obviously, I I, I would be remiss of me not to talk 
about that Kilroy interview purely because its genesis was so surreal. I remember one morning, I Jason Cowley, our editor, noted that I've been tweeting a lot about Kilroy, and then he said, "Why don't you interview?" Him? To which I said, oh, "Believe me, I've tried. I can't. <laughs> there is no, there is no contact detail. There are no contact details for Robert Kilroy Silk or indeed any members of his immediate family on the internet." To which Kate Mossman, our, our feature editor, said, "Oh, I have a black, I have a little black book of every celebrity's agent, which seems to be unique to to Kate Mossman because no other, no other journalist seems to have access to it. Because I've had, if I had a pound for every time someone's asked me for Robert Kilroy Silk's contact details, I would have four pounds now, because everybody says, you know, love the interview with Kilroy. How do I get in touch with him? And the truthful answer is, I don't, I don't know because." Because Kate is on Kate is on maternity leave, so I can't ask her. And I don't know how she got the agent's details. All I know is that Kilroy's agent is an officious Scotsman. So I say, look, I don't know. But if you can find a an elderly showman's agent who is officious and Scottish, then you're on the right track. Sorry, I'm just reading from the revelation that you never actually found Kilroy. <laughs> no, 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 no. Kilroy was Kilroy was found. So that was that was that all happened in, on the, over the course of one morning. But this happened to be the morning. It was the day Jeremy Kyle was cancelled, and I suggested Jeremy Kyle should take a. Well, not should. I, sorry, I don't. I'm not pro Kilroyism or Jeremy Kyle. I said Jeremy Kyle could do a Kilroy. And then that day, that day, Kilroy's agent happened to have a lot of phone calls. So it was initially very angry at the New Statesman's request for an interview with Kilroy and couldn't really understand why someone was ringing him on that day of all days to ask about his political career. And that, that day I was on the bus gliding down the Caledonian Road and as the introduction to that piece records, got a quite menacing phone call calling me a bullshitter and asking why I wanted to interview him. And over the course of that two-minute conversation, I charmed him, got his personal email address, and uh, the rest is um, not even a footnote in history, the equivalent of a Chinese fortune cookie note in history. But yeah, I mean, uh, that was that was up there with my journalistic experiences, purely because just the phenomenon of speaking to someone who hasn't been spoken to for a very long time, who's voluntarily left public life, and also, something I and Stephen, you know, you have done a bit of this as well. Is speaking to people who are no longer in politics, who were in politics and proximate to proximate to power, but not necessarily people who wielded power themselves. I must have spent a cumulative ten hours with Dick Tavern, who was the prototype SDP MP. He resigned over his Labour, his constituency Labour Party's opposition to the EEC. Or rather, they deselected him as a candidate because he was um, avowedly pro EEC. Lincoln CLP did, and this was in 2017. And I first went to see him in his in his flat in Westminster, and he was 88 then, or maybe 87. And it's just fascinating speaking to speaking to people of that age, that vintage. And Dick Tavern is still remarkably sprightly. He's still a working peer in the House of Lords. One of the favourite Staggers pieces I've ever put up was um, something Dick Tavern emailed me on a whim in February. But speaking to someone who can say, you know, me and Roy Jenkins, this is, were, you know, doing this and doing that. And also who can speak candidly with the benefit of hindsight and also experience is, um, is a fantastic education. I only wish, I only wish David Trimble would have replied positively to the many emails I've sent him over the, the past two years. 
because that was that was that that was the one that got away. And I also wish Mary Whitehouse was still alive. Yeah, I would love to have talked to her. But I'd say it's the um, understanding political counterculture. That was a countercultural move of Dick Tavernes to resign in the context of his local Labour Party. Kilroy was a, in countercultural sounds sort of positive, but, you know, Kilroy, a reactionary through which it's possible to understand the sort of incohate opposition to both to new Labour and, and the social reforms of that time. I almost think the best way to understand governments sometimes is through the reactionary forces they inspire. Which is another reason why, you know, that I've always enjoyed writing about the, well, not so much enjoyed, I always found writing about the DUP fascinating because you can chart a political party, you know, phenomenally successful through which you can also learn so much about the unionist psyche or, or, or an element of it and electoral politics in Northern Ireland. So, yeah, I've um, spoken to some interesting people, seen some very interesting things. But that's, that's, that's what I've said I've enjoyed most, trying to understand people, eras, political movements, through the reactions they inspire is how I would rationalise the amount of time I've spent thinking about Robert Kilroy's thought. And I always see you as kind of the, the right-winger whisperer of the New Statesman, which is quite a unique position to be in, isn't it? Because, you know, I know from, from some of my reporting that I've done in the past that it's sometimes difficult to persuade certain people to speak to you because of the reputation of the magazine as a left-wing publication. So what's been your experience of that? I think the interesting thing about speaking to people of the right and obviously, I spent a lot of time in the 2017 Parliament speaking to members of the ERG, and in particular, Steve Baker. Is because right-wing publications during that time, or, or publications of the right, or, or newspapers, were seen to have their own agendas on Brexit. A lot of the time, if you write for a publication whose stock in trade is more discursive and reflective and analytical, rather than looking for news lines, and that is not seen to have a position on May's deal beyond seeking to understand it or you know the the corporate position of the new statesman is we are against brexit as an idea but you know we're not carrying water for michael gove as some people saw some publications as doing during that period then actually people are more receptive and i guess you know as with any journalistic relationship you strike it's about the amount of time someone is willing to give you there are you know labor politicians who don't spend very much time on speaking to members of the the left lobby i guess that's not so much a a comment on the publications themselves a lot of the time as to what politicians want out of their journalistic relationships and what journalists they know look but certainly when the first time i interviewed steve baker i think he was quite he was quite surprised that i was that with the new states and wanted to do an interview that was sort of tell us about why you know your obsession with ludwig von mises influences your position on Brexit rather than something a bit more confrontational, which it's a difficult balance to strike because obviously it's incumbent upon us as journalists to hold people to account when they get things wrong and, and to to draw a straight line between the, their thoughts and their consequences. But I think it's important for us as a publication, uh, and something we do very well is explaining why people think these things and the significance of them thinking these things. And that to me is, has always seemed to you know do a greater service to our readers than necessarily socking it to people when you have as much pixel space or space in print as the new statesman does you can always let people sock it to themselves without realizing it without laying it on too thick you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me patrick mcguire our political editor stephen bush our britain editor anish kellyan my fellow political correspondent alva ray our theme music is devil by the devil licensed under creative commons and it's produced by nick hilton
Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.